when I would first sit down and try to meditate in the jail cell, it was just me, I didn't have to share it with anybody else. I would sit for what felt like an eternity and then I'd look over across the unit and I could see the clock behind the the corrections officer's desk. It had literally been like three and a half minutes had gone by. And I'm like, oh my God. But what I started to find is somewhere in those three to five minutes was this freedom I had never experienced before. There was a peace, there was an absence of suffering, you know, that um, I had never experienced anywhere else. And it was almost like, you know, what do two of these would do? <laughs> Same way I was with, with my substance use, right? Like, what if we could meditate for 10 minutes, you know? Ooh. But again, also starting to see that my relationship to the things around me, which leads to my substance use, um, it all starts in here. It all starts inside the body. I'm Heather Venegas, and you're listening to King County Recovery Conversations, a place to celebrate recovery and help break the stigma of addiction and mental health. I'm Heather Venegas, and I'm joined today by Joe Conniff and Elise Bryson. And it's a new way of doing things here at King County Recovery Conversations in that Elise and I are co-hosting today. Elise, I'm going to pass the mic to you to start us off. Well, thank you, Heather. I so love being asked to join the King County Recovery Conversations because, you know, I'm a sober gal that loves to talk. (laughs) And there's nobody I'm more excited about talking to today than my friend Joe. Uh, We actually met during the pandemic online, uh, and somehow I dragged him into coming to a clubhouse event that I had during the pandemic. I did a lot of those. I did a lot of things during the pandemic I don't necessarily want to do over, but I'm so excited. Excited to have Joe here today and to learn more about his story. Thank you, Elise. Thank you, Heather. Great to be here with you all this afternoon. The, let's say the condensed version, um, post 9-11 military veteran, United States Navy, um, grew up in Western Massachusetts, spent right up until the start of my naval, my time in the Navy, um, to 19 years old in Western Massachusetts. Got to do some traveling um, after I got out of the service ended up in the Pacific Northwest. Um, Not that quickly from Massachusetts to here, but um, through the course of my substance use disorder, attempts at recovery, treatment, other things, um, the Pacific Northwest really has my heart right now. This is where I've had the best of times and the worst of times. Um, You know, have become a a spouse, a homeowner, um, a father, a small business owner in early recovery, an author, all of those aspects of who I am today um, are part and parcel of the experience of the Pacific Northwest, which saw the arresting of my chaotic substance use and also the beginning of my recovery um, at turn of events in 2015. Class of 2015. I do like to talk. I like to talk about, uh, at least for my own recovery, I'm the class of 2006. And I, I said that to someone the other day, and they got really confused because they thought I was talking about high school. They they definitely did not get my joke. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people don't get my jokes. It's okay. They're kind of like dad jokes, but but Elisified. Um, okay, so 2015, walk me through. I don't want to hear all the yuck that was your your drunk a log or you're using a log whatever that is but like how did you know that with your substance use disorder that it it was at a point that you knew you had to deal with it what what did that look like for you joe oh good question um well you know it's one of those things i think i've heard around recovery is it's like i'm 
generally the last one to that party of knowing that it's an issue. Um, that's usually other people's, other people have surprise, you know, um, and that came in the way of um, King County Sheriff's Department, um, King County Prosecutor's Office, the Seattle PD, um, stakeholders along Third Avenue had decided they had had enough of what I was doing, selling heroin to support my opioid use disorder. Um, as well as everything else that kind of came with it, living out of doors, experiencing homelessness. And so, you know, to be clear, I, I have definitely known for, for quite a while that my relationship to substances, um, as it stood through my contemporary understanding, um, was not a winning streak by any means. I joined the Navy at 19. I was discharged by 22 because of substance use in the military that I could be very successful on one hand and left to my own devices, my relationship to substances, which I used to deal with a lot of things in my life outside of my control, ability to try to wrest some control out of the things in my life. is um, So I had a, a, a track history of substance use closing more doors than it was opening for me. So 2015 was basically, I was you know, I guess the best way to say is exposed in, in the nude in the streets of Seattle, so to speak. Obviously, it was still clothed to some extent, but everything that had compounded through chaotic substance use and the impact on my relationships, my relationships with employers, with landlords, with the mother of my child, my child, my family members, um, all the doors that had closed had led me to that place where the only option left was to be in the streets of Seattle. And that looked like Aurora Avenue, in and out of motels, those kind of places, getting robbed at gunpoint, those kind of things. And then I was like, you know what, we just need to be all the way out at Third Avenue because I knew that that's where the substances were that I was using. And that's where people who understood the way that I was living life were. And that was, so that was the closest thing to community that I could find when everything else had been removed from my life. And so, mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's kind of that, that intersection, that critical intersection, which, which led to, you know, the law enforcement intervention that, that would be the impetus for, for real change in my life. So outside of law enforcement, um, once you really were face to face with the fact that you knew you needed to make some really big changes in your life, there are a lot of different pathways to work towards a recovery uh, and not everybody gets it at once, right? Um, so I'd like to hear a little bit about what your early days in recovery looked like and all the different tools that you might have collected and added into your sobriety toolkit that you might not even use all of them today, but what, what got you started on your on your journey in those early days, Joe. Early recovery for me was was something that was that was occurring in um, the regional justice center, the jail down in South King County here in um, the Seattle metropolitan area, and um, that that inner intervention, which was um, required me to be incarcerated for some in custody treatment um, for a period of about four months was really this critical time where I had a limited amount of accessibility to information about recovery, right? So kind of county correctional facility, what's on the jail bookshelf, what kind of programming comes into the unit in which I was in. I was in there with about 70 other people, 50 or so of them, somewhere between 50 and 60 were people that I had been picked up on the streets with in that big, um, it was called Operation Crosstown Traffic. So I also knew a lot of people I was in the unit with, which is kind of, 
it's good in a sense, but it's also maybe not everybody sharing the enthusiasm for recovery. I was 31 years old. I realized starting to eat up some felony convictions at this age is really going to complicate matters for me. And so there was a lot of self-reflecting going on. And fortunately, I had treatment groups, I think it was three to five mornings a week for a couple of hours, um, which was kind of insightful. There was some reflection, some, there's a workbook um, called Moral Reconation Training or MRT. It's part of a corrections industries um, integration of substance use treatment and kind of like moral accountability, touchy subject. But um, I only had 12 step meetings being brought in one night a week consistently. And then there was often there was a second one, but the uh, the folks that were doing that, that H&I work were not able to be consistent for that second night. And so what I found is I had, there was drugs in the unit. Um, like there generally always are in jail. Prohibition doesn't even work there <laughs> that easily. Um, and so I had drugs in the unit. I had this programming going in the morning and I had this meeting, you know, that came in, let's just say the one night a week I was able to commit to that. What I found is there was still a lot of hours out of the day that I was sitting up here in this challenging neighborhood called my mind. Um, and... I will say having that time with myself was crucial because um, it really allowed me to see that I had I didn't have a healthy relationship with myself. I don't like using this word. I literally was hating a stranger. I had spent so much of my life using substances, trying to cover aspects of myself that I didn't have the emotional resources or social resources for kind of things. And um, so I was at this kind of crossroads of I have all this time in the cell um, a little bit of programming. What am I going to do with this? Right. Because I was like, I didn't have a sponsor. I didn't know much about step work. I'd seen, you know, steps on the walls and the little meeting room that we had in the, in the correctional unit. But, um, I walked out one day to look at the bookshelf and there was, um, there was a book called Dharma punks on the shelf by Noah Levine. Um, one of the founders of Refuge Recovery, Buddhist inspired recovery fellowship program, um, longtime meditation teacher, and I grabbed that book as a picture of his tattooed hands on the front of it, which I was like, oh, okay, this is kind of punk, right? Like, can respect the 12-step stuff, but it's also, we talk about attraction rather than promotion. It's hard for me, born in 1983, to connect to 1939, you know? Um, here's Fair. a guy who was into <laughs> yeah. skateboarding, graffiti. Um, so the whole attraction piece is really good. And then about two days later, I found a book in there by Bo Lozoff. Um, called We're All Doing Time. And it was, um, Bo Lozoff was a yoga instructor who brought, started the prison ashram program, I mean, I think back in the 70s, and he was bringing, you know, yoga practice um, and, you know, Eastern spirituality into prisons. And um, I basically, now I have these two books in front of me. I'm reading about Noah's experience, um, getting into trouble in his late teens and going through the juvenile um, carceral system. And I have this Bo Lozov book about doing yoga, asana, the physical postures, practices in correctional facilities. And it was basically, as I mentioned, my mind being such a precarious place. These were two books that were about turning inward, right? Like everything in my life and my substance use was about out here. Like I need something out here for this thing in here. So I talk about it in my book is this um, external solutions for internal dilemmas, right? And so... These books were this very straightforward invitation to, without any substances or fluff, we're going to go inside, right? 
And so, you know, I say peace is an inside job. I think Yoga Behind Bars uses that as part of their their mantra and their slogan. And um, I found that to be very true because in all of those times in between the meetings and between the treatment groups, what was I going to do to spend time with my mind? Surely it was like, yeah, I could have got access to substances if I needed them. But what I started doing was when I'd come back from my treatment groups in the morning, I'd take out the bolos off book, I'd put my little disaster gray jail blanket on the ground and use that as a yoga mat and to the best of my ability do some of the postures which loosened up my body helping me be a little bit more limber after months on the street not taking care of my body just walking day after day after day chasing drugs and um, sleeping on hard surfaces and um, that allowed me to then start to lean into a seated meditation <laughs> I remember you know, so I had the Bo Lozov book and then there were some simple instructions in the back of Noah's um, Noah's memoir about just simple mindfulness, just following the breath, right? And um, to me, when I would first sit down and try to meditate in the jail cell, it was just me. I didn't have to share it with anybody else. I would sit for what felt like an eternity and then I'd look over across the unit and I could see the clock behind the the corrections officer's desk. It had literally been like three and a half minutes had gone by and I'm like, oh my God. (laughs) But what I started to find is somewhere in those three to five minutes was this freedom I had never experienced before. There was a peace. There was an absence of suffering, you know, that um, I had never experienced anywhere else. And it was almost like, you know, I wonder what two of these would do. (laughs) Same way I was with with my substance use, right? Like, what if we could meditate for 10 minutes, you know? But again, also starting to see that my relationship to the things around me, which leads to my substance use, um, it all starts in here. It all starts inside the body. And so being able to head off a craving, being able to head off something that always arises inside, but we got to dial things back just enough to be able to start to see that this is something that manifests internally and then starts to, it becomes an external action. It becomes some external, probably not so skillful words. And other things, and so I started to realize is this is the this is the intervention that I can utilize. If I can't raise a sponsor, if I can't go to a meeting, this is the inner resource I need in times of um, dis-ease. Um, just in the human condition, which I'm sorry, we're all kind of subjected to. Um, life is just plain unsatisfactory at times. And so being able to see that as something that just is, not something to be fixed, not something to medicate um, the ways that I like to, that was like a really eye-opening experience because I started to cobble together fellowship one night a week. But I also could go back to my unit and I would like, I would started meditating at almost any opportunity that I had because literally I was, I was chasing this new thing just like I did with, with substances. Mm-hmm. But um, I mean, I'll take the trade off. There's been far more um, positive fruits of meditation practice than practice of my, of my addiction for lack of a better term. That's great. I, and I know that Heather is chomping at the bit to jump into the conversation now that we've turned it towards um, yoga and meditation. Um, so let's let's spend a little time there. I do want to eventually get to talking about where you are now and all the work that you do uh, surrounding advocacy. Um, but Heather, why don't you jump in with any questions that you have around this part of Joe's story? Uh, it's such a rich topic. I, I love that that you found this while you were incarcerated and that you were able to utilize it on a daily basis, sometimes several times a day. I've been reading your the beginning of your book lately and I was just really touched by, um, you know, what a different experience or um, choice you made 
there to do that practice and to like you talked about not going out into the yard and things like that and being out with the other people that you had been running with on third but going into your space and and going into the breath and mindfulness and doing the poses I loved how you talked about doing yoga first and then how you could be more still and actually sit um could you go a little further into um, talking about how you have used that mindfulness and meditation as your program of recovery, Joe? Yeah, thanks, Heather. Um, yeah, it's like I think Johan Hari really, I, I want to say coined the term, or he's definitely helped make it popular if he didn't initiate it, but that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection, right? And so, um, and I think I talk about this a little bit in the book is connection to what though, right? There's, I'm not saying the connection itself isn't an accurate term, but we need connection to community. We need connection to resources, depending where we are on the path. We need connection to a program, um, <laughs> you know, um, shelter, those kind of things. The other side of it I look at is if, when I talk about it, addiction or substance use disorders as a, full flight from reality. I don't see anything more connecting as, as part of the recovery process is a return to this moment, a willingness to be with here, what is with what is. Um, because so much of my use was, I'm having this internal experience um, and I don't want it. You know, so much of life is uh, working to get what I want and pushing away that which I don't want. Um, and, you know, so I look at it as, um, that is kind of my, my metaphor for why I do the practice is, if everything in my in my chaotic use is trying to pull me out of right here, the most radical thing I can do is turn back towards that moment. And that's with the principles behind mindfulness, right? Is, you know, to turn with curiosity, with kindness, um, with a lack of judgment, you know, to try to, to be equanimous, to, to not be polarized by the things that have been polarized for so long. So like not, not you know, it's easier said than done. Um, you know, but for me, what that looks like is I, I don't want to say non-negotiable, but I sit close to non-negotiable six days a week, right when I get out of bed, minimum 20 minutes up to 45 sometimes. And to me is it's that time getting out of bed, um, getting into the day, doing that before I walk out into the world, because there's going to be a lot of reasons for me. I get on the freeway. If I stop for a coffee, you know, I drive from Tacoma to Seattle. There's all kinds of opportunities to practice every morning. Um, it's a lot better if I start the practice at home so that I can show up a little bit more skillfully without throwing um, finger signs out the window in the car at people because I am diseased in that moment that I'm not getting where I need to go as fast as I want. So I found that, a, that an early morning practice before I get into the shower, before I do anything else, go straight to the cushion and sit. And just sit with what is. It's like I haven't been conditioned by the world externally. I haven't been on the phone yet. I haven't opened up the emails. And there's a piece that's accessible. There's an innate, true nature of myself, which is to just be okay with what is. Um, to an extent, I realize that's maybe not everybody's experience like that. If we live with severe mental mental health challenges and things, it may not be. There's a privilege in a lot of my experiences. Um you know, that have been afforded to me. But I really find that having a non-negotiable practice every day, and sometimes if the day is difficult, I use my lunch break to sit again because a lot in the work that I do and also for myself is, 
you know, I do peer work, I do social services stuff too. And it's, and it's, um, it's exhausting work in a sense while it simultaneously be enriching, but how do I also afford the people around me the same version of myself that the guy that got up and did a meditation practice, the people between nine and 12 get that guy. What happens after I take my lunch break for the people from like one to four, do they get the same Joe? Um, and so at times is also knowing that, um, it's also the best, it's the kindest thing I can do for myself. And in turn, if I do for myself that I can also do for others in that capacity. And so I find that the formal practice, that sitting piece, that intentionality to get down on the cushion and sit with whatever is present, whether it's the physical discomfort of just getting out of bed, the thoughts in my mind, or just seeing the thoughts come by as just a movie that my mind is trying to attach to, um, or a car of craving that is going to throw me in the trunk and take me up I five thinking, I need things to be different than they are, right? And so that that turning towards seeing what is, you know, kind of uh, what's on the horizon for today with the way that my mind is showing up. And then also that willingness to stop, breathe, turn towards. There are a lot of see a lot of that and, you know, the later steps in the 12-step programs too is, you know, that pause through 86 through, you know, 88, 89 and the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is that, really like looking it's an opportunity to turn towards you know practice towards reflection um what is the impact on the world around me what's the impact on my immediate family and so i look at the formal practice and then the invitation for those informal opportunities to the breath is the opportunity to turn towards what is here in the moment mm -hmm. we don't have the breath of the future or the past same with sounds i have all these wonderful tools available to to me right here in this vehicle in this vessel the body and the sensory experience to be brought right back here to this moment, you know? And so to me is it is the most core component of my recovery, looking at it through that same lens of if the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection for me, for, for this guy in recovery, connection to this moment is, is the best recipe for recovery for today or for the next five minutes that I have access to. Beautiful. You know, and they say that it's this moment the present is where we can actually change something, not yesterday, not tomorrow, not an hour from now, but in this moment. And um, I love that. That's the same for me. I get up in the morning and uh, go sit in, in my chair, uh, the same one in the same place every day. And I'm really blessed to have um, a lot of sounds of nature around me and beautiful vistas of the sky and and part of my practice has been sitting in the pitch black of the morning uh more earlier in the year and and watching light come and and seeing the sky turn the most incredible shade of blue before it you know lightens up and listening to the birds start to sing and life start to move around me and it's so centering and grounding and it drops me down into a deeper place within myself where everything stops except the breath and except what I hear around yeah. me and it's such a it makes such a difference if I don't do that, if I don't start my day that way. <laughs> there are oh, yeah. infinite opportunities for me to act out in ways that are unkind and judgmental and intolerant and impatient and all the things. So um, I love that, being brought back to this, this moment. Um, at least I'm going to pass it to you for some of our other questions and topics with Joe. 
Well, I do just have some logistical questions now I want to ask of both of you. Because, you know, when I get ready to meditate, I'm thinking that I need all these special things. I need the right app or the virtual reality thing or the perfect yoga mat or I need to be burning a candle. I need to have my Voss water. Like all this stupid stuff comes into my mind. But what I hear you saying is you sit in a chair and you sit on a cushion and that's it. Right. That's it. I don't. Neither one of you said you brought anything else into the equation other than yourself sitting. Am I picking up on that correctly? That is correct. Although I must admit, sometimes I make coffee first because I need my fuel and uh, everything goes better with French roast. Um, That makes. And I also have a journal and a pen because that's another part of my practice. But I start with the silence and the breath and and meditating and sometimes I chant which is something I picked up during COVID uh, during lockdown I um, I landed on this um, creative expression class that was supposed to be 21 days um, of painting uh, Tara who is a female Buddha and uh, we looked at a book by Rachel Wooten that goes through the 22 aspects of Tara and what some people did in 21 or 22 days. I did in six months and um, thoroughly went through and used the practice for each of the 22 aspects, doing the chanting and the meditation and the sitting, and then going to the canvas and painting each aspect of Tara onto the canvas, one over the next over the next until the painting was complete. And um, for me too, Joe, that was also about connection and that connecting to the different parts of myself, right? Each aspect was an aspect of each one of us and getting to practice that and look at places where that was absent in the way that I was walking in the world. It was one of the greatest um, experiences that I had. Uh, And I'm so grateful to have had the time to do that. You know, when everything in the world slowed down, it allowed me that practice. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Heather. It's like, and it's, there's so many different ways to meditate, right? There's so many different paths. You know, people are like, um, you know, like I lead a mindfulness class here at the cafe and I very much do it from a, um, you know, I consider myself a Dharma practitioner, but also in keeping it secular is it's like I can kind of run with the, the John Cabot Zen westernized, accessible to everybody without the, the Pali and the Sanskrit terms and those kind of things, which I love. Um, but it's also like, a lot of that, you know, and interest to share this with others is not helpful on the front end, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're just, you know, to your thing, Elise, is it's like, yeah. I come back to the thing is it's like, just sit, <laughs> just, just anything else doesn't make a difference where you do it, lay down, you know, like, I mean, sure. I would love like on the weekends, I go down to the Tacoma waterfront very early to experience all of the things you said, Heather, and I love the water coming and going, right? Because you also get to see the impermanence of things in in a mindfulness practice, we get to see the arising and passing of the breath, sounds. Um, everything has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And so for me, when I look at the recovery process, right, is it cravings and other things, which are not related to substances so much anymore, but I still crave for things to be different, you know, or if like if it's if it's enjoyable, I want it to last. And you know, <laughs> yeah, if I don't like course. it, you rest assured as I'm doing everything in my power to be like I'm dodging it, you know, and so for me is it's those 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 core tenants that I can only truly experience firsthand in a practice, which is the the impermanence of, of everything around me, the constant fluctuation. And so sounds, breath, it's new breath, 
falling away of an old breath, new one arising, all of that. I need to see impermanence because I very much, am, I'm operating from fight or flight a lot of the time. Not as much as, as I used to, but it's very much, it's just, I look at substance use disorders and compulsive behaviors is really just, an, it's a little extreme manifestation of the regular human condition, right? And so, but how do I come into contact with that in a way that makes sense to me? That is not grandiose and pie in the sky, which some other people, they can they can faith their way into some things. I really like, I, I need to see it. I want to touch it, right? You know, and some of that um, terminology from, I think, uh, from the Buddha of like, just come and see for yourself, right? And so that practice every day is that reminder, that invitation, the cushion is there. Come and see for yourself, that life is unsatisfactory. Like just the fact that it's impermanent is unsatisfactory. And like the third piece is I take things personally. That's just what the human experience is. And so I get to see in that practice, oh, I am feeling this way. Let me change. Let me reframe. This is anger. This is sadness. Not over-identifying and saying, I'm angry. I can't meditate. It is challenging to meditate. I'm. This is a hello anger, hello joy, those kind of things. And putting a, a, a separation between me and that over-identification, but I can only do that if I practice, right? I have to see that I am being consumed by some aspect of self um, that is now going to drive the car for the day and subject everybody around me to um, less skillful versions. And so, you know, it's like that. I think the last thing I'll say on is it's like I saw somebody say, if you don't have the time to sit for 20 minutes, definitely sit for 40. You know, like just if you're rationalizing why you can't sit, you definitely need more time on the cushion kind of thing. And so I'm just kind of like, take whatever you can. If it's if 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 you've got five minutes, take it. You know, just try to return to the breath, return to the breath. If the mind produces anything, it's just doing it, right? So, mm -hmm. Well, we are such, we're such, I mean, our routines are everything. They really are, or our lack of routines, right? Um, so that's powerful. I wish I could speak to some amazing, consist consistent practice I have. I don't, but I'm always listening and trying things mm -hmm. that I will hopefully find you know, the things that work right for me. Um, so let's transition a little bit, Joe, to talk about like all the things you're doing now. You have a book out. You've got another one on the way. You're at the Recovery Cafe. You do a ton of social work and advocacy work. I mean, that's a that's a lot of things that you that you're juggling, the very classy problems that you have today. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a trip to to reflect on like what I've managed to pack into a little over eight and a half years and like how much stuff I was able to give away leading up to that, you know, like I feel like this is, this is a good streak we're on here. And so, yeah, like, um, you know, kind of plot along that path a little bit. 20, 2015, I had the intervention, you know, was, uh, brought into King County drug diversion court. Um, I had not seen my daughter in months. I completed the in custody treatment program was released to the community and I just hit the ground running, you know, and it was, um, I spent a lot of time at some local fellowship halls up in the central district. Um, I started going to the recovery cafe at South Lake Union. You know, these were all the judge's ideas and the case manager's ideas that um, I was willing to try some things out. Um, I had, yes, been beaten into that state of reasonableness that I would accept somebody else's ideas for once. and. Before I knew it, it was like the training wheels were off. I was halfway through drug court. I had not had a positive UA in a long time. Um, 
I had gotten a no contact order lifted from my child's mother in another court because of the work I was doing in drug court. That is one thing about if you're going to be in the criminal legal system, the drug courts are very rigorous programs. They, they don't, they work well for a lot of people. They also don't work well for everybody else, but, um, you know, it, when you're in the legal system and we know unfortunately the way things are for people who use drugs um a lot of times it's the de facto treatment you get as a as, as a break in jail and um you know so sometimes you end up in one of these programs where there's some other things paired with that and i found that participating in drug court helped me navigate the pending felony charges and other matters that were involved in the criminal legal system, people were like, oh, you got a lot of oversight. Like, we don't need to ask you to do anything else. Like, you'll jam yourself up over there in drug court real quick, and we'll see you again another way. And so people saw the work that I was doing there and were willing to start to give me breaks. And I started to realize, okay, I'm doing this work. Things are getting better. Um, a long-term, long-held passion of my daughter's mother and I, we've been split for five years, but we had been in the local food scene for a long time. We had worked for organic farms and we were very passionate about good food. I always try to say, I was like those last last little bit that I was using heroin before I ended up in the streets. I was probably the healthiest vegan <laughs> heroin user I've ever met um, until, until that moment I wasn't. But that was also one of those things I was telling myself, well, you're eating organic and local, you know, you're, you're using heroin, it'll be fine. Um, the illogical stuff that I used to come up with, but. 2016, I was graduating drug court. I was completing a yoga teacher training program um, with a staff member that was offering that at Recovery Cafe at South Lake Union. So in this interest of, I didn't really want to teach. I wanted to deepen my practice, right? I wanted to not go out and pay $20 for a yoga class. I wanted to be able to practice at home in the morning um, with my own humility of, you know, um, inability to do these wild poses that I saw other people do when I go to these advanced vinyasa flows and... And then I started um, a small food business uh, with my um, with my ex, and we were within a year we were in eleven farmers markets, had seven staff, and we had a production facility, and we were licensed through Washington State Department of Agriculture, like things that a year prior I was like, if we don't get this drug court thing right, we're going to prison for a few years. So like, I I, I took these these things that I did in my active substance use. I I sold heroin to support my habit on the streets of Seattle, and I would. You know, at one time, pride myself on my ability to sell, I don't know how many, how many bags a day, um, quality control and having a good product of something that in my active substance use, I prided myself on because it kept people coming to me. You know, there are a lot of transferable skills that this is something I look at in the work that I do as a peer is these things that seemingly in a very stigmatizing society and culture around behavioral health, where we already know what's wrong with the substance use and those things from a cultural perspective, right? What people don't agree with, with it, right? But what's right about it? What works about those transferable skills is my ability to sell a product and commit to my customers and those things. I didn't learn that standing my business up. I learned that selling dope in the streets. And I took that into my business in a way that I created a product that people loved. Um, and I had people coming and tell me that the kale chips were addictive. I talk about that in the book. I'm like, mm, not sure how well you understand that term. Like, cause I've, I've lived it a little bit, but I'm glad you like our, our vegan healthy snack. And, um, so we have that going. And then, um, I was staying close to drug diversion court. People told me stay close to the solution, stay close to what works. Um, drug court provided me a staff and a team of people that were invested in my wellness after I completed that program too, which I also was like, hey, this is these are genuine, authentic folks. 
And so I was going to the alumni meetings um, with the treatment program manager over there, wonderful guy by the name of Tom Essex, super, super supportive to me for years. And he asked me to come to the alumni meetings. And it was like, you know, drug court had been around at that time that I had been in it, 20 something years. And there were only five or six people going to those meetings. And, um, mm. but I became aware of opportunities as a peer, which I hadn't really considered myself yet because I was just working a recovery program. And I had this business, which I really, this was the thing. This was in my goal setting stuff that I did at the end of drug court. I said, my, my dream is to own a business. Boom, like check that box, like inside of a year because I wasn't, I wasn't in a chaotic relationship to substances. And I was like, geez, we can, like what else can we achieve in this? And so when Tom mentioned, hey, there's this resource specialist role is opening up. Maybe it's something you or somebody you know is interested in. And I kind of started kicking it around. Like, I never envisioned myself in social services and these things. I was like, you know, I've got this business, this thing I want to do. But I also, I was like, why Why are you interested in me? And I said, because you've been through the program. We've never had somebody who's been through the program who could have this opportunity to maybe come back on the staff side and really affect some change from a peer place. Because peer stuff was really taking flight in the implementation into like, you know, emergency rooms, emergency departments, recovery, you know, RCOs, clubhouses, all these other things. It was really like the, the time was ripe in 20, late 2016, early 2017. And um, it was really interesting. So that full circle experience of, you know, we hear about sometimes is um, there was this opportunity to come back to this program that helped me out so much that I felt like, okay, I understand where Tom's coming from. I, I understand this program from a place that we can really do some cool stuff. And so... Um, and it was contracted through my treat my old treatment provider, the place that I did my outpatient treatment at Therapeutic Health Services. So going to be employed at the place I was going to provide UAs like this is pretty cool. You know, like so I went after it and um, my old substance use counselor became my supervisor within not even a year of graduating drug court. And I'm like, OK, this is some pretty cool stuff. We got this recovery business is all right. You know, um, I start becoming aware and being open to receive those gifts, right? These things that I would have never had an eye to because I was just in, you know, tunnel vision. And so I did that for five years. Um, it went by like like that. And um, I did three years contracted through therapeutic health services. And then it became a county position. And me, as somebody who had been discharged for the military for my cocaine and alcohol use, I thought I would never be employed by the government again, right? And so check another sure. box. Like we're going places, we're doing things. These like all these exclusion these exclusionary aspects of my experience as a person who used drugs and closed doors, I was kicking them back open again, you know. And, and I and I have a lot of lot of organizations and people to thank. And again, there's a lot of privilege in my experience as a cis hetero white person in this community, but that was also the thing that I said is not good enough for me is when I looked at why are the people that I used to use drugs within the street that didn't look like me, that were members of the LGBTQ community or things like that, that like didn't share in the identity markers that I did or didn't have the, the natural and familial supports here that, that I had some of. I started asking questions, you know, like, why does this operate this way? started understanding drug policy history, started understanding why some people wouldn't do a program like Drug Diversion Court if you were like a, a black community member and understanding draconian drug policy, things that came out of the 80s, you know, and those kind of things. And so I started to, now I was like, now I was committed. I was dug all the way in as it was like, well, I'm going to continue to do this, but 
then kind of came the advocacy component. And so I was very fortunate to be very supported at Drug Diversion Court. I started looking at things like the language that was used. Let's stop using the terms clean. That's fine if you're in a 12-step program and you use that, but language becomes reality for the people we serve. And if I, as a person in recovery, am working with people who are trying to access recovery and, and arrest their use um, in that program or reduce their harm somewhere else in the community is how I refer to that person, how I talk about my own recovery, tease up what they start to see. And, you know, that connotations of you're not clean if you're using drugs is I I really lived that. I felt dirty because of the the other side of that connotation when I was using it. Mm-hmm. And it's just, um, it was little things like that that I was like, let's look at the way that the change, the change in the language that is used at the bench. Mm-hmm. Um, looking at the other things that are offered for people for recovery supports. And so bringing my perspective of, um, I had to navigate exiting 12 step in 2018 because my child's mother and I were going our separate ways and uh, for she was in recovery. We wanted recovery for both of us, for our child, but navigating a split in a, in a place where people know you as the, the recovery couple. Been there, um, done that. This is, yeah, yeah so hard. like we want, it's That's not exactly episode. a fully safe environment yes. when you feel like not everything is held in right. confidence and everybody wants to see, oh, I want to see you together. And I'm like, you don't know what happens behind closed doors when we go home. We do. And so, um, fortunately, I was I, I went all in onto refuge recovery, and I started sitting meditation retreats, and she was able to stay in the twelve step communities. And so, we're at this point where it was like I wanted to start offering other options for folks in drug court. And so, some folks are like twelve step is just not that appealing to me. And these things, I was able to really say, look, here's what here's what I know is available in the community. And I was reaching out to people that were running those little fellowships or those meetings. Hey, I represent this program. I have somebody who would really love to come take a look at your yoga class. It's your meditation group. They got to get this slip signed. Would you be willing to sign it? All I had to do was just just get the okays that this is a verifiable source of um, verified recovery support that the drug court participant attended. And then I started to, from a peer perspective, really expand being supportive of multiple pathways, um, understanding that it's not something fundamentally wrong with an individual or that they're just not willing enough to do this program versus this one. It's about being person-centered and really listening to somebody's experience and trusting what they say when they're in front of you is, this is not helpful for me to go here. I recognize somebody or it just doesn't feel right. It's my role in that, in that moment to hear it, to honor it, and then to pull up alongside you and figure out, so what else might work? Mm-hmm. What else interests you? Here's what I do. Let me like let me inject a little bit of my hey, I, yeah, I know a little bit about that. Like, what about this thing? And so what I found is I was given kind of free reign to just say, just go stand it up and understand it needs to be verified. But if people will sign it, let's 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 open this stuff for more participants. And what I found is, you know, as I had people who were feeling better about the process they were participating in, as much as it's it's a voluntary program, it still feels like you don't have a lot of options. It's go to prison or participate in the program, as voluntary as that is, and it's no shade on it. It's just it's just the reality of the circumstances. And so if we're gonna people have to be somewhat mandated to participate in this process, can we give them the best experience in a person-centered capacity that we can? And so what that looked like come the pandemic was I was leading a mindfulness group virtually one day a week. I was leading a grief and loss group one day a week. Um, I was leading a step study one day a week, and I would do a, a recovery topic a couple other days. And then I would, you know, if participants wanted to chair that meeting 
or share their story and we would they would get their credit and I could offer some community service. So we were finding an intersection of ways to help people fulfill the requirements of the program, be vocal about their recovery, um, share their story with other people, get that kind of that practice. And um, that was just such a wonderful time, as, as difficult as it was. But, you know, I really a lot of appreciation to the staff at drug court from the judges on down to that trusted me with um, with being a peer and delivering services from a place that was still relatively new. And then we also, you know, had other other um, organizations that were stepping in simultaneously to really help build out the robustness of a peer model. You know, Peer Washington was just another wonderful organization that was that was getting into that work at the same time. And having me on the inside as the county employee and being able to work with the staff that were they were, you know, getting people trained up that were coming through drug court because we knew like who's better suited to work with the current clients than people that have been through them, right? Like, and so how do we really build this out? And that is still going to this day. And as my, in 2022, as I had been at that point, very much um, more invested in wanting to learn about harm reduction. And I'll also just be transparent here that I identify as a person in recovery from an opioid use disorder. I do not practice um, complete abstinence either. Um, have not for since 2018 and my life has continued to to progress in a better direction I do have some hardline non-negotiables of substances I do not use um, and I won't get into details on it but I um, I also kind of um I don't encourage anybody to to navigate and try things the way that I have felt comfortable to engage in um, but it's also I want to you know I'm, I want to dispel myths and things that are not medically or pharmacologically accurate that get perpetuated that people cannot have skillful relationships with something compulsory and it's not just to do with substances as for a person who has an eating disorder or shopping compulsion right is people have to move into balance with those you don't get to practice complete abstinence on food mm -hmm. for longer than maybe 10 to 14 days um, and even that is precarious for some people and so i say where is this all or nothing binariness complicated matters for people right and so in those all abstinence conversations is what is it like for a person that um stigmatizes term but workaholic for lack of better has a compulsive relationship with work and is compromising their family relationships right is abstinence is maybe not the option but a skillful healthy relationship with things right and so that has been kind of an aspect of my story and you know looking at moving into a harm reduction framework um and learning that history and understanding that, yes, for better or worse, people use substances and um, acting as if that's not a reality is not going to help anybody. And so I started looking at my peer efficacy from a harm reduction perspective, too. And I was entering work in the homelessness sector with the with the local regional authority and was um, in charge of standing up a uh, peer navigation workforce. I was just hiring 30 people with lived experience. And the reality was, is we knew we had people living in encampments on the streets and arresting their substance use was not going to be part of things right then and there it was just not a proximal um goal that they were going to meet and so a lot of our work was acknowledging again for better or worse is we're going out to that encampment we got to be prepared with narcan bring fresh syringes bring clean glassware bring safer sex supplies um because that stuff was going to happen after i was gone from the encampment whether or not i agreed with it and if I want this person to have an opportunity to move towards recovery, whatever that looks like for them, and move into a place of stability under a roof or a vehicle, whatever that looks like for them, as I have to get a better versed in understanding 
how not to cast the, the bias in the places that I had experientially operated in for three to four years around abstinence-based programs is I wanted to be better effective with my community. Um, and just in the time of fentanyl and current drug trends is it was like, it's, I wasn't comfortable asking people to stop their use if I couldn't get them connected to medication at a time where people are going in and out of custody and mortality rates are perpetuated because the supports and the medication, you know, to that, that implementation and connection for folks is just not quite there yet. And so I was really at a, at a crossroads of there was more to learn and I had exhausted myself at drug court. And from that point on, there was um, always going to be peers there. And so I was like, yes, we can, we can move forward from here. Like my work here is done. It's time for somebody else's perspective, maybe a different community member that represented a different identity experience to now create the other changes that I couldn't speak to and I didn't represent. So that was, you know, 2022 was like kind of this new launch pad into um, the new horizons, so to speak. So, Are you going to be running for president anytime soon? No. What a wonder. There's a, maybe some council stuff down the road down in Pierce County um, as I start to get involved in my local community. I, I definitely won't say that um, local office and those things are off of the table um, at a very small scale. I, I would, you know, like really wanting to take constituent stuff and work with my community and um, advocate for change that way. Cause I really feel like I love, I love listening to people. What do we need hearing the different ways people are impacted? No presidential stuff, but I'm, I'm not going to say local office is not off the table. So, okay. So we might see your name on a yard sign on a stick someday. Good. Good. Well, I'm just so weird. Impressed it's so by weird it. to think about. <laughs> but yeah. It is weird. It is weird. It is super weird. But you know, uh, when you get the call for the advocacy bug, like it, it usually hangs on for, a while in my experience. So yeah. um, it's been so great to hear your story and hear your journey today, Joe. I just really appreciate um, that you just share so authentically and, and vulnerably. Um, and, you know, there's several times today I found us all laughing at things that, you know, certain listeners might not find funny, but uh, those of us in recovery, we have a real sense of humor uh, uh, on topics that for others might be hard to listen to, but that's only because, you know, we're, we're coming at it from experience. Absolutely. 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 Thank you, Joe. What a amazing legacy that you left um, with drug court before you stepped away and, and everyone will just be able to um, benefit from that and can only imagine that it will grow from there. So thank you for the all you did, especially around Pathways to Recovery. That's so incredibly important. There was a person that I had the opportunity to interview a few years ago um, who was sharing that 12-step fellowship was not a way that spoke to him and his heart. And he ended up getting support and funding to do ballroom dancing, which for him was that piece of community and structure and connection and practice. And so he got to go to Century Ballroom and dance and dance and dance as part of his program of recovery. And he's thriving and it worked for him. And I think that is just like so important to consider that each one of us may have a different thing you know, that, that is that piece of the puzzle that clicks when we put it into place that helps us um, to really move forward into our recovery. 
I'd love to end on a happy, you know, upbeat, positive note today. Just something that would give our listeners hope. And so much, actually, of what you have shared has done just that. I'm wondering if you might just speak a little bit, Joe, to, to what your life in recovery is like. Often people hear conversations around people that are um, in active use and the challenges and hardships and harm that is occurring or uh, maybe they're you know getting into treatment and and starting to get some kind of intervention for their condition we don't often get to hear people share about what life is like in recovery down the road and how this can be something that we all can aspire to and have those incredible gifts of recovery yeah, I mean, ooh, where do I start with that? I mean, I mean, I think it's it's easy for me to say like definitively since since I stopped using substances in 2015, which there was that period of about three and a half years that was complete abstinence. Um, I, that was really yeah, that was like the the wreckage cleanup, right? <laughs> there was the, there was the amends, there was getting out of debt, right, and those kind of things, and now. I just want to be realistic is that, you know, financial freedom, it's really hard if you don't have financial freedom in this, in this, just in this economy, in this country, it is, and especially in our region. Right. And so, you know, what I want to say is there was, um, getting to the point where I actually was able to have people to, you know, being in a position to loan me some money to, I could do things like buy a vehicle, become a homeowner. Like my spouse and I bought a, bought a home in Tacoma, uh, back in 2021, um, being in a position to, you know, the gifts of recovery stuff is being in a position to also share widely with people too, right? Like I am in a position now where I am not floundering out in the street, trying to figure out how to find something to eat and someplace dry to stay that I can apply for advisory councils in those things today, because I'm interested in helping other people. And that is a gift because I don't want to say that people who use are selfish and by and large, it can very much be part of the experience. I'm not going to deny that. I put my substance use before everything else, but it's also between my spirituality and just the nature of recovery and the empathetic components of watching the people that come through the doors of the cafe or the people that I see in crisis in my community is a desire to, to, to alleviate the suffering of other people. And um, not doing work that's not mine to do, not saying that, but being interested in the welfare of others because I feel like I know a couple of things at this point because I have the privilege of knowing some resources, right? But it's also like enjoying the things that I love again because I'm not tied to an opioid that I can't travel. And, um, and I mean, and that even happens in people's forms of recovery, like medication is still difficult to track down, right? But the fact that I can actually be interested in taking the vacation with my daughter and those things, and I've been able to travel again, I've been able to take back up billiards and compete in Las Vegas, like something that I loved for years that I thought I could never do again because of that fact is I don't have any business in bars and those things where pool tables are. And that was one of the big challenges for me with my my version of recovery is I can be in those spaces and have a, a skillful relationship with things. And it doesn't just exist in those places, but recovery allowed me to navigate things that I used to enjoy that only ever had substances as the driving force behind them. And I enjoy billiards without that having to be at the forefront of it. Right. Um, I don't need substances to be part of family events and those things. And I've gone to plenty 
shows, festivals, and those things totally abstinent, and it wasn't didn't wasn't soul crushing. It didn't suck. Um, you know, like it's I don't know how many ways to say it. We do have fun in recovery, but. I mean, the gifts are endless. And, and a lot of it, it's not even about the recovery and the stopping use. It's about the growth that comes out of the process yes. of self-discovery. And the things that I never thought I would like that I do like this work. <laughs> I would have been content with a forklift job for 40 years at 18, if you ask me. Um, you know, and every day is being able to enjoy enjoy a job. Because it's, I, I got to say, I'm a little greedy in this sense, right? Is I get... I got a good insurance policy. I get to work with people that are living this every day the way that I did eight years ago. And I get that insurance policy for myself and I get to help people. That's one of the greatest gifts. Like it is, that's a twofold, twofold win, you know, um, because I do know, I do know some things about the resources in this area and um, some of the challenges and being able to level with somebody. That's probably the greatest gift is seeing somebody in pain and no, I'm, I might have something to offer this person, even if it's just my time today and an ear. That's probably one of the greatest gifts I've been given. Thank you so much, Joe, for being with us today and sharing so beautifully. And thanks, Elise, for co-hosting with me. Um, until next time, this is Heather Venegas um, of King County Recovery Conversations. And just want to say thank you to our incredible production team, Work P2P. And thank you as well to King County Behavioral Health and Recovery Division for helping to make this podcast possible. Be well. I'm Heather Venegas. Thanks for listening to King County Recovery Conversations, a place to celebrate recovery and help break the stigma of addiction and mental health. If you or a loved one are experiencing substance use disorder, problem gambling, and or a mental health challenge, please visit the Washington Recovery Helpline at warecoveryhelpline.org for resources and a 24-hour helpline. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Special thanks to our production team at Work P2P Studios. If you'd like to share your recovery journey with us, please email me at heather at kcrecovery.org. We'll be back in two weeks with another story of hope, resilience, and healing.